Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, Scott. Foss, how are you, brother? I'm good, man. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm so good. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, yeah, for me yeah. this week. I really appreciate all. it. Uh, before we get going, you know, I'm going to do an official intro and stuff, mm-hmm. but I wanted to let you know that uh, when you were on with Dean Blundell, you gave him and his buddies a bunch of Bitcoin. I don't know yeah. if you remember that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so some of them still have the Bitcoin. Dean, okay. Dean sold his before Christmas and ended up buying his whole family Christmas presents with the Bitcoin that you gave him. Okay, hold on. That doesn't make sense because I don't think it appreciated. I I couldn't have given them more than like 50 bucks each. So No, you gave 500 each. I did not. Did I really? Yeah. Dude, you are way more generous than you give yourself credit for. I don't know why I would have that that's that's a lot of money. I'm not sure why I was feeling that generous, but uh <laughs> From the bottom make no half stepping. I'm the dog. I made it through so they don't ask questions. Long Beach and it ain't no half repping. Let's go. Greg Foss is a fellow Canadian with over 30 years of experience in high yield credit trading, and he's a graduate of Cornell University. Greg is currently an executive director at Validus Power based out of Toronto, Ontario. Greg was one of the founding shareholders at 3IQ and played a part in getting the world's first closed-end Bitcoin fund to trade on a major stock exchange. That fund currently holds $1 billion Canadian dollars worth of BTC. Foss, the boss, my man is here. How are you, sir? Well, I'm doing well. Thank you for the introduction. It's very kind of you. First off, Greg, I want to thank you for all of your contributions to the Bitcoin community. You know, I've been watching you explain Bitcoin for many years. It's a real honor to finally get to speak to you in person. You know, in the early days, you really helped me understand Bitcoin. And I know that you're going to open up some eyes with this conversation today. Oh, thanks. You know what? I mean, it's, uh, I feel that I've, uh, I say I've sat in various chairs, but uh, my life has just had some experiences that uh, are somewhat off, uh, off track to the off the beaten path. Let's put it that way. So yeah, I'm very I'm passionate Bitcoiner because I believe everybody needs to understand the beauty of this instrument, but also some of the fallacies and the failings of the uh, the current fiat, which is paper money system. Greg, I want to start with your career in credit trading and investing. Tell me how you got started in finance. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned I, uh, I I did graduate from Cornell, but prior to that, I, I was an engineer at McGill, at McGill University. And the funny thing was uh, I was at McGill to play sports and I sort of knew that uh, I didn't want to be an engineer. In fact, after about two weeks of engineering, I knew I really didn't want to be an engineer as a profession, but uh, I was okay at math, and I, uh, which you have to be when you're an engineer. And you can always switch from uh, engineering to business, but you can never go from business back to engineering and then capture the credits that you've, that you've earned in business. So I said, well, listen, I'll stick with it. And 
wouldn't you know, after four years, I, I got my degree, but I, I knew, as I said, I didn't, I knew I didn't want to be an engineer or practicing engineer. So I took a chance and wrote a, what's called a GMAT, a graduate management admissions test, uh, because I wanted to apply to some U.S. business schools. And, and the lucky thing was I applied to Cornell and I was accepted, but I say frequently that I would not have been accepted as in an American. And that reason very simply was because while my uh, grades were fine coming out of engineering, I had no work experience, but Cornell, as, as fate would have it, was trying to build an international business program, meaning attract more students from uh, countries around the world. So Canada, lucky me, I got in and I was one of the youngest kids in, uh, in the class, which is quite important because you need to understand how valuable it is going to school with people who have work experience, real life work experience. And I had only summer job experiences with, uh, with engineering. Um, but what I did figure out is that I wanted to work in a trading environment. And this is, I got to know that from the people I went to school with. And what a trading environment is, is basically trading risk, okay? Now, you could be a trader of uh, baseball cards. You could be a trader of bonds, which I was. You could be a trader of equities. All of them entail a measure of risk and risk management because you have to be able to buy something at the right price. The old adage goes, you don't make money when you sell something. You make it when you buy something, meaning you have to buy something at the right price. So if you are trading baseball cards, it's the price you pay for that baseball card that's the most important, not someone coming around and saying they want to purchase it from you in the future. You have to know that the price you bought it at is the right price. So it's called buying well. You have to be a good buyer. And so anyway, I, I decided I wanted to focus on the credit side of a business. And the reason that uh, bonds are so attractive to engineers is because they're pure mathematics, okay? There is no subjectivity to bonds. And uh, because bonds are a fixed contract, that's why they call them fixed income instruments. Equities, you know, you got all these equity knuckleheads that are like, oh, equities can grow to the moon. And let's not worry about what the price earnings ratio is today because it's going to grow into its footprint, blah, 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 blah. Bunch of garbage half the time. But the truth is bonds, there's no subjectivity, right? It's like, this is the coupon. This is the contract. This is the duration. Rock and roll. And so... I just morphed into becoming a financial engineer. Does that make sense? I became a financial engineer rather than a mechanical engineer, which uh, I had studied for in undergrad. I became a financial engineer. And the first job I attained coming out of school was working for the Royal Bank of Canada in some very interesting projects that were instrumental to my embracing Bitcoin as much as 30 years after that fact. Talk about your experience working for the Royal Bank of Canada. I mean, that's a real player. You know, you're moving around real risk. You're doing real uh -huh. shit. Yeah. How has that shaped your view? You kind of touched on it a bit, but how has yeah. that shaped your investing view well, and yeah. your view of markets? Yeah, great question. This is very important for Canadians to understand, right? Look, by and large, our banks are relatively safe relative to global banking. But what most people don't understand is how risky global banking is or banking as an industry is. First thing to understand about banks is you are basically 25 times levered to your capital base as a bank, which is to say for every $100 of loans that a bank makes, it only holds $4 of risk absorbing equity capital. 
perhaps $5, at which point they're 20 times levered, they're not 25 times levered. Which means if you make too many loans that lose <clears throat> a ton of value because they either default or because the credit quality of the counterparty that you've lent to has deteriorated to a point where default is a higher possibility, that $5 cushion, <clears throat> excuse me, gets vaporized pretty quickly, which means banks are frequently insolvent on a mark-to-market risk basis. Nobody in Canada understands this, including all of the equity analysts that say stupid stuff like, you got to buy this bank because the dividend yield is attractive and it's a safe bank. There's no such thing as a safe bank. What is safe is the fact that the bank is so large that the government would never let it able, would never let it fail. So there's a de facto backstop. And here's the interesting project. So I graduated, I came to work at the head office of the Royal Bank. And I was working directly for the chief financial officer. And one of the projects, my first projects that I was working on was the Latin American debt exposure of the Royal Bank of Canada. <clears throat> now, this was 1988. Okay, I graduated in 1988. And for the first uh, couple of months at, at Royal Bank, I was working in a, not couple of months, but my first project within a couple of months was working for the CFO, examining what to do with our Mexican exposure. Now, I know it doesn't sound like big numbers now, but trust me at the time, they were huge numbers. Royal Bank had a billion dollars of exposure to Mexico that had gone bankrupt. They also had about a billion dollars of exposure to Mexico, uh, to Brazil, which was also bankrupt. And in total, the exposure to what's called lesser developed countries or LDC countries was $4 billion, okay? Again, doesn't sound like a lot of money in today's foolish trillions of dollars are thrown around, but $4 billion was a big amount of money. And I'm gonna to prove to you why. The average trading price of the LDC debt was about 25 cents on the dollar because they had stopped paying their interest and people wanted off that risk and a buyer who would buy, who would purchase the bonds for a specific price or the loans was only paying 25% of the claim. Meaning you want to sell it to me. I might be able to get 40 cents back for it, but my bid is only 25 cents or 25% of notional. Therefore the Royal bank had $4 billion and the average trading price is three billion. Uh, sorry, is uh, twenty-five cents on the dollar. They need to write off seventy-five percent of four billion dollars, or three billion dollars. Right? Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. If they were to market to a trading value, well, I go and I look at the book value of equity, and lo and behold, the book value of equity, meaning the risk-absorbing capital of the Royal Bank of Canada, was less than three billion dollars. I'm like, holy crap. This is incredible. Royal Bank is insolvent. Now, this is 1988, and I'm going to finish the story by saying we the situation at Royal Bank wasn't different from any other multinational bank, including all the money center banks in New York City. They were all insolvent, and that is why there was a tre Treasury Secretary, Nicholas Brady, in 19, in the late 1980s, had to come up with what's called the Brady Plan. And the Brady Plan was to solve the Latin American debt 
crisis, not just for Royal Bank of Canada, obviously for the money center banks in New York, for global banks in Europe, for the Canadian banks that owned uh, Latin American debt that had defaulted. And this was a generic solution for all the banks. And all they did was, it was a quite ingenious solution, but it was financial gimmickry. It was accounting gimmickry. They changed the light, the term of the loan from a five-year loan into a 30-year loan. And they changed the, uh, they, they made the principal amount backed by zero coupon treasuries, which would accrete in value from a price of about, to make the math work and not confuse you guys, 25 cents on the dollar over a period of 30 years, that's zero coupon treasury note would accrete to hundred cents on the dollar, right? That's how treasury at zero coupon treasury bonds work. And wash your hands of it. No need to mark to market the bank's book. Over 30 years, it will be skated on side. Well, smart solution, but seriously, when you think about it, a government bailout of the banking system, the global banking system. So I'm like, damn. I just went to school for six years to figure out that our banking system is in big trouble. And it's always going to be in big trouble when there are financial crises, because again, there's so much leverage in the banking system. So I, in my trading career, have lived through five or four successive financial crises. I won't go into them and let, you know, until you tell us we should, but the point being in 1988, I realized that the fiat is the Ponzi and I didn't have the solution and I didn't turn into a gold bug. I just said, and this reverberates in my head. When I went to the CFO and I said, and he's a great guy. I said, Emil, we have a problem. He goes, I know, don't tell anybody. And from that day, I'm thinking, what in God's name is really going on here? How are we pulling the wool over people's eyes so successfully? successfully and successively. And what it all comes down to is it's true. The Canadian banks are too big to fail, but I promise you they were also bankrupt in 1999, which was long-term capital management. They were also bankrupt in the great financial crisis of 2009, even though they weren't as bankrupt as or insolvent as badly as the Lehman Brothers and the, and the US guys were. But credit and contagion in credit can make mark-to-market values on loans change a lot more than just 5% of the value of that loan. And again, that's all the bank holds is 5% of the value of that loan. That doesn't mean all the loans go bankrupt. And luckily they don't. But the truth is, if you were a trader and you had to mark-to-market your bank loan portfolio on a daily basis, the book value of equity of the Royal Bank and all the other Canadian banks would be vaporized on a regular basis. Hence, you need a solution to this fiat Ponzi. Why is there so much leverage in the banking system at all in the first place? Well, that's the only way banks work, okay? Because think about this. The typical spread on a bank is about over the cost of funds. Let's say you're a really risky borrower, okay? The bank will charge you about seven or eight percent and this is outside of credit card lending which is immensely profitable but it's not the way the banks spend or use all their capital even if it on a hundred dollars that the bank was fully capitalized meaning it didn't raise any money from deposits it only raised a hundred percent of the loan from 
equity equity contributors, nobody would be making that loan without leverage because that loan is not attractive enough to own just to earn 8%. What you need is a portfolio of these loans that diversifies the risk in theory, and you can lever it so that that 8% that you earn on the loan flows back and is leveraged 25 times. Some of the loans will lose money, some of them will make money, but overall, the profitability, and it's called a DuPont ratio, return on assets, and I won't get into it too much, is basically your gearing leverage times your, uh, your uh, uh, so how does it work again? The DuPont ratio, you guys can look it up. Return on, uh, on equity is return on assets divided by your gearing gives you your profitability, which will, or, or your, your uh, expected profitability for a bank, which can get towards 25%. Because of the leverage. Without the leverage, you're exposed dollar for dollar to that loan, and people will not be a bank investor. They're like too risky, or in theory, too risky if they really understood what they were doing. The reality is, it's not too risky. It's just you can't generate the types of returns that people are like, oh, well, this bank has a dividend yield of 5% and it tends to go up in value over time. Yes, it goes up in value only when there is socialized losses that bail the bank out when they make stupid mistakes like lending too much money to Latin American countries. Do you think there's any fixing of this system or, I mean, you've, you've no. seen the inside no. of it. Yeah, there's no fixing it. No one will accept lower returns. Uh, everyone assumes that the banks are too big to fail, which they are, and the government will never go back on that promise because everybody would withdraw their money out of the banks if there wasn't this implied government backstop, right? And everything would stop. Definitely. And we're seeing that play out as well just right now with inflation. What's the what's government doing about inflation? Well, they're printing more money. Okay, yeah, things are more yeah. expensive. So Quebec came out and said, well, we're going to give an extra inflation thing. And hey, so actually, it, when did they say that? Uh, like two days ago. Quebec? Oh, my God. All right, so that's my home province. And and I think uh, there's a lot of peel, people who have failed mathematics, but it seems like the Quebec government has failed math even worse than most people. They don't understand. You cannot print yourself to prosperity. So all they're doing is punishing their citizens by doing that. But okay. That brings us to the why, I think, behind Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Explain to me how you discovered Bitcoin and why it's part of your personal investment strategy. Sure. Uh, good question again. So I, I guess... I'll tell you, I've been looking for the solution to the Fiat Ponzi for over 30 years, right? It started in 1988 when I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I said, I didn't become a gold bug. But then I lived through the great financial crisis working at a hedge fund where I did actually feel that the financial world was very close to collapsing. Like there were the, uh, one day I can specifically remember exactly what seat I was sitting on in a train going to uh, Toronto. And I'm like, I can't believe this could be the last day that the financial system actually works. And it was in March of 2009. And the Fed did everything they needed to do to bail out the banking system. Again, though, the key word is bail out the banking system. Every successive crisis has required the banks, the, the risk on the bank's balance sheets to get transferred to the government balance sheets. Okay, so the troubled asset relief program called TARP in 2009 
the Fed solution to these toxic mortgages and stuff was basically transferring risk from the, the balance sheets of the banks to the balance sheet of the government, right? And it rescued the system. Thank goodness, because, you know, I, I, you have to say thank goodness because no one wants to be around when the system fails. The system will fail, though, okay? And that is why you need Bitcoin. Bitcoin is insurance against the system failing. And each successive financial crisis gets worse and each successive financial crisis gets more, you know, is shorter duration, meaning the 2009 financial crisis took about two years to unfold. And then fast forward to the COVID crisis, that took about two months to unfold, right? The next one could even be shorter duration and more severe cascade of, of prices. But what we need is a solution. And so in 2016, the, the founder of 3IQ, I was back in uh, Montreal and actually I'm a partner in some pubs in Montreal and I'm sitting at my pub in Montreal and he's trying to pitch me on Bitcoin. And I'm like everybody, all right, okay. You know, I know it's a Ponzi because the, Fed, the, the press tells me it's a Ponzi. It's gotta be a Ponzi because the press would never lie, would they? Come on. All right, so, <laughs> but at least thank goodness I did some work and I'm like, okay, Fred, why don't you tell me, you know, give me some reasons. And then he's giving me these reasons and he's like, you know, and there's only 21 million of them and they'll be backed by math and code. And I'm like, that's all cool. You know, I get it. I get it. But he says, I'm going to show you this in action. And he took me to a, a thing called tradeblock.com on his phone. And it showed the blockchain in action, posting transactions to the mempool and then building blocks that, and I'm an engineer and I look at this thing and it's like a breathing organism. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? This is actually happening in the world right now. And it was like a come to Jesus moment for me. Okay. Because I'm like, holy shit, is this cool? Like, first of all, you could see it. Now I got all the rationale, but it's backed by math and code. There's nobody controls it. It is trustless, meaning you, it, you, it's verified by, doesn't need to be verified by any intermediary. So the word trustless isn't meant to say that you can't trust it. What it means is you don't have to trust anybody. There's no central mechanism to trust. These transactions are being verified. And I saw this and I was sold. I'm like, holy shit, is this cool? Okay. And I just started to embrace it. And I went down the proverbial rabbit hole and I've been studying Bitcoin since 2016. And I believe it's the solution to so many things, including it's the best asymmetric trade and investment opportunity I've seen in my 30 years of managing risk, which is to say the upside is so incredible compared to the downside that you don't have to put all your eggs in the Bitcoin basket to participate in the insurance that it offers to the world. And that's the beauty of an asymmetric trade. And I have a saying that asymmetric trades define careers. Okay. Um, and that is the truth. I've only seen in my history of trading about three trades that I viewed as being totally uh, the best trades I've ever seen. And you just have to, uh, you have to um, uh, embrace them. Okay. And so it's for that reason that I am such a Bitcoin advocate because you don't have to own a lot of it in order for you to participate in its beautiful upside. And that's why I'm passionate on Twitter and I'm passionate on these podcasts 
because I think I've sat in a risk chair long enough that I have at least some uh, credibility that I can evaluate various trades that can make people money. And we were doing great in the great financial crisis, which is hard to imagine at my hedge fund. We were doing great because we had actually purchased these insurance policies and I still wasn't happy because the world was going to end. Like you don't want the world to end on a fiat basis. What you need is a parallel system that exists that'll allow the fiat system to transfer to the Bitcoin standard. And that's exciting because we don't have a choice. The fiat system will fail. They always fail. As a French philosopher named Voltaire said, eventually paper money returns to its intrinsic value, which is the value of the paper it's printed on, zero, okay? Don't overthink this, people. You need insurance against the fiat Ponzi, plain and simple. I had Mark Yusko on the podcast and he talked about the 700 plus other, maybe it's more, fiat currencies. And currencies, paper currencies are not it, right? There've been 775 paper currencies in the history of the world. Three quarters of them no longer exist. Just again, let that sink in for a second. Three quarters of all the currencies in the history of mankind wow. don't exist. I, I love Mark. I mean, look, he's a he's a historian. He and I were actually shared a stage together last year in uh, Miami. So a huge fan of his. Greg, you talked about three asymmetric trades. What were the other two that you were aware of? Well, to be honest, in 1988, I told our chief financial officer at the Royal Bank to buy the heck out of this restructured Brady bond Mm -hmm. at 25 cents on the dollar. And typical of a bank, he's like, well, no, thanks. We bought as much as we should at 100 cents on the dollar. And now at 25 cents on the dollar, at least we didn't sell it, but we didn't buy any more. And those bonds actually went from 25 cents on the dollar back up to about 140 cents on the dollar before wow. being totally paid off at 100 cents. Um, and the, the, the reason for that, not to confuse your listeners too much, is because of a combination of interest rates, Mexican oil prices, sure. uh, you know, uh, favorable things that didn't price the, 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 the impact the price of a bond that went in our, in our favor. But I figured at 25 cents on the dollar with the backing of the U.S. Treasury, yeah, you, you might as well average it down. I mean, you are an idiot. You blew your brains out a billion dollars <laughs> worth at 100 cents on the dollar, but you don't buy any more at 25 cents on the dollar because that's what Canadian banks typically do. Then uh, the best trade of my career, though, was coming out of the great financial crisis. And maybe some of your listeners know this the term called asset-backed commercial paper, but we bought all this uh asset-backed commercial paper that had defaulted in Canada. Uh, Canadians, once again, had bought a ton of it at 100 cents on the dollar, and they paid the wrong price. But that debt also traded down to around 20 cents on the dollar. And we did our math and we did our homework. And we're like, wow, this is just a really solid upside. And we can hedge the risk. And so we bought as much as we could. And there was more selling than we could absorb because our fund was smaller than all of the sellers that were in the market. But over time, we recycled some, peeled some off to uh, other hedge funds in the US. We traded over uh, $5 billion worth of it in our hedge fund. And 
it went from 20 cents on the dollar up to 100 cents on the dollar. And we had unit holders that were very happy that uh, we had identified an asymmetric trade. Now, the difference with bonds, though, is bonds are capped. You can, in, in theory, in equities, you can buy an equity at a buck a share just for a number, and it can go to an infinite price, right? It, but bonds never go to infinity. Generally, a good bond, you buy it at par or 100 cents on the dollar, it pays its coupon over the life of that bond. And in 10 years or however, whatever the life was, you get your $100 principal back. And then sometimes you buy something at 20 cents on the dollar, and it goes back to 100 cents on the dollar, but that's only a five bagger, including the, the, the coupons. So it could turn out to be like a, a, a 10 bagger because of the coupons and everything, but it's not equity type of asymmetric upside risk. Well, Bitcoin is not capped to the upside, okay? Bitcoin, I have a price target on Bitcoin of over 2 million bucks US per Bitcoin in today's dollars. And it's only trading, it's 40 something, and I'll just say that I'm not 100% certain it's going to over 2 million bucks, but the odds of it going to over 2 million bucks are far higher, in my opinion, than the current trading price is giving it uh, credit for. So the asymmetry is 50 times to the upside, and I don't see that much downside to the current price. So... You put more than 0% of your portfolio into this trade. That's all I'm saying. Not telling you to go at 100% in, but if you own zero, you are taking more risk than if you have a proper portfolio allocation. One of the videos of you uh, that I posted on Twitter a while ago, Greg, was you talking on the What Bitcoin Did podcast and kind of going through your $2 million price target for BTC. I'd love for you to share your thesis uh, with us here today. How do we get there and what has to happen? Okay, uh, so it's a pretty simple grade 11 math, like I like to say, right? Um, you got to figure out what the total addressable market of Bitcoin is. And I very simply break it down to, well, it's all financial assets in the world today. Means I don't think it'll capture all of them, but let's start with what is the total addressable market. And in today's dollars, the total of financial assets in the world is US dollars 900 trillion. Okay, that's how much it's worth. That includes all global real estate, all global debt, all global equities, all gold, all fine arts, all currencies, anything that can be assumed as a financial asset, 900 trillion US dollars. Now, one of my thesis is, I believe Bitcoin to be monetary energy or digitized monetary energy. And as an engineer, that appeals to me to the point where I think there will be a time when oil and gas and other natural resources, but let's start with oil and natural gas, will be priced in Bitcoin, not US dollars. And if that happens, there's a percentage of the total addressable market that will shift from using the US Treasury bonds as global reserve to Bitcoin, right? It's just, that's the way things work. There will be a dynamic paradigm change. And what you have to do then is say, what percentage of the total addressable market is it logical to assume that Bitcoin can capture? And I just start with 5%, which I think could be low, but listen to the math. 5% of 900 trillion is 45 trillion. 
$45 trillion in today's dollars divided by 21 million Bitcoin is over 2 million bucks a Bitcoin in today's dollars. Could it be higher? Yeah, could be way higher. Could it be only 1%? Well, just do the math at 1% and you'll realize that it's still really attractive to own Bitcoin at 40,000 US dollars per coin. And then you do what's called an expected value outcome based on some probability distribution. And I can just assure you that this is the best asymmetric trade and investment opportunity I have ever seen. You've talked about it as an investment, but Greg, where do you personally see Bitcoin in our lives? How are people yeah. using it on a day-to-day -day basis? Because for a lot of people who are against Bitcoin, yeah. and I see them on Twitter, they don't. They still don't get it. They say, "Well, how is this different?" You know, I, I donated money to the Ukraine, and I did it through Bitcoin because I thought that that was a great okay. use case for it. And yeah. I had some people write me say, "Well, you know, you could have just donated to the Red Cross, or you could have donated via yeah. a bank. How is this different from the fiat system?" So there still is that disconnect. Imagine. Let's take a, a flip side. All right. Um, look, I support Ukraine. I don't support Russia. But let's say, just say. I did support Russia, but, but I'm not even going to go there. How about something that's near and dear to our hearts in Canada that I know Dean Blundell didn't support, but I'm okay with that because it's freedom. I supported the freedom truckers. Okay. I support freedom. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Okay. I'm doubly vaccinated. I support freedom of choice. I'm anti-mandate. Oh, shame on Fox. Oh, fuck you guys. Okay. I'm a freedom advocate. I am a freedom advocate. Dean Blondell may not be a freedom advocate as far as the truckers go, but that's okay. You're allowed to make that choice. If you had raised the money for the freedom truckers using GoFundMe, what happened? They got blocked. Yeah. What if you're raising money for Russia? None of that money is making it through the traditional banking system to go to Russia. They've all been blocked. Okay. Bitcoin has no centralized point of failure. You can send money to anybody around the world. It'll settle in 10 minutes on chain and you don't have to worry about it being blocked okay this is the beauty of non-censorable money or value and that's what bitcoin is now taking it one step further they also blocked the bank accounts of some of these people meaning the canadian government you know you can call that free if you wish i call it tyranny but again and i i respect dean and everything and we had a we, I never battled him online for this, but I just hope he understands that I support freedom. I support Ukraine as well. You can't get censored. You can send your money and it settles to the address you want it to. And I'm going to flip this to a very positive, hopefully. I've sent money to an indigenous community in New Zealand, 750 US dollars worth of Bitcoin, and it settled in 10 minutes. If I had tried to do that same transaction through my traditional Canadian bank lines, it never would have settled, okay? They would assuredly say it was money laundering somehow and you're not allowed to support an indigenous tribe in New Zealand and it won't settle. It would have taken seven days to settle even if they had allowed it to settle, it wouldn't happen. Now, fuck these banks, okay? It's my money, not their money. And if you work hard for your monetary energy, uh, energy, you should be able to spend that monetary energy how you believe. Is that against the views of some other people? Well, that's possible.
But again, that's the freedom of spending it the way you want. So I want to be very clear here, okay? I'm a freedom advocate. I am not trying to block people. I'm not saying you have to believe that, you know, I hope you respect it. There are certain people who supported the truckers and certain people who didn't. But that is what freedom allows. So, you know, comes back right to it. Yes, you could spend your send your money to Ukraine, but looks to me like they prefer to have Bitcoin. Why? Bitcoin will maintain its value or go higher. They can use it however they want. They won't get blocked by any Russian, you know, interference. Hey, that's what you're supposed to do. And you go back to this GoFundMe stuff and the Canadian uh, politicians and Krista Freeland. I don't agree with that stuff. No, and I think I think that that's completely respectable. Thank you. I mean, look, my dad, my granddad fought in both world wars. He fought for freedom. Okay, I promise you, he didn't fight for Trudeau and Freeland to be able to block bank accounts of people they viewed as being opposed to their view of society. Pure and simple. Greg, you have debated Peter Schiff about Bitcoin. <laughs> I'm not sure you changed his mind, but I'm also not sure that it matters. I'm interested to know, what did you learn about him from your conversation with him? First of all, I respect the man for being a, uh, he's a great marketer, okay? So I'll give him some kudos. He's a great marketer. He also agrees that bonds are a horrible investment. So for that, we agree. He, in fact, used the phrase that bonds are return free risk, which I like. OK, I like Peter Schiff for saying that. It might not have been his uh, quote, but he used it on the on the debate we had. What I don't like about him and I called him out on this on on the debate and he admitted, I said, Peter, you're a horrible risk manager. And he said he didn't care. Now, if you have anybody managing your money. And they say they don't care about being a good risk manager. You got to take your money away from that knucklehead. Okay. Because <laughs> ma managing money is all about managing risk. And the reality was Peter Schiff had the opportunity to buy Bitcoin within his gold fund when Bitcoin was $10 a coin. Oof. Now it's gone up from $10. It's gone up. 400 times since then, right? Imagine if he had just put 1% of his gold fund in Bitcoin because they both have the same logic that they're trying to insure against a fiat collapse. He had put 1% of his fund in Bitcoin. His whole fund would be up four times, right? Four times by putting 1% in, but he didn't. He was too conflicted and saying, you know, gold is better. And his performance, very honestly, within the gold ecosystem is horrible. His performance over the history of his fund has trailed just about every single metric possible because his fees use up any incremental performance that he generates. And he has to be a good marketer because he's not a good risk manager. And he admitted it. And I like his son. And I honestly believe that Peter Schiff or Shifty Pete, as I call him, actually owns a ton of Bitcoin. But he just won't admit it. Oh, he can't now. It's too much. No, of a thing. that's fine. 
Right. And right. the second but, that he does, Greg, that's the top. And I think we all know it. No, I don't think so. Look, Bitcoin, <laughs> I, he, he, I don't think he'll ever do it. And that being said, who cares? Bitcoin's bigger than any single person. Bitcoin is way more important than Greg Foss. Bitcoin is way more important and doesn't care about Peter Schiff. Okay. Why? Because Bitcoin is the solution to a $900 trillion fiat ponzi that's built on sand okay if you don't understand the risk that our children are being exposed to because of irresponsible politicians like pierre trudeau saying or excuse me justin trudeau saying stuff like the budget will balance itself that fucking idiot should have been fired on the spot for saying something like that and i'm sorry to swear on your podcast but he has to be called out if he was the ceo of a publicly traded company and he said those same words he would have been fired on the spot as a irresponsible steward of the capital of that company but he can say it as the premier of canada or the prime minister of canada what a lark i mean come on people you can't have a financially illiterate politician running our country without damage. And then he went as far as saying, I don't care about financial policy. Good Lord. What does he care about? Well, he cares about, you know, blocking truckers. He cares about ESG, all of these things that he thinks get paid for by printing money out of three thin air. Doesn't work that way. I wish he had spent some time in finance rather than in drama classes. And I better be careful. My wife always gets upset at me. But you got to call out a clown when a clown is going to destroy the future for my three kids. Greg, one thing that I really respect about you is something you said earlier about not having to be all in on Bitcoin, you know, and I've heard you say before, no, you know, I believe in this. I, I see the asymmetry, but that doesn't mean I'm going to remortgage my house so right. you know and put everything in my life in here please so, don't uh, because you know you to me seem like a real risk manager so during these times that we're in right now where you know you kind of touched on it you know during the recession we got the pandemic and now geopolitical stuff how are you managing risk and how are you developing an investment strategy for the time that we're in now well great question uh, you've, you've done some good uh, good thinking in terms of questioning first of all own zero bonds. Please, 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 people do not own any bond of any, what do I say, any uh, pedigree, whether it's junk bonds or government bonds or provincial bonds, all of them are trash in the context of a world that has inflation in the US of close to 8% year over year. You will not make an appropriate return on the risk that you own of owning that bond. And this is irrespective of whether there's default risk. Every bond has default risk. Some is low, some is high. Doesn't matter. You are not earning an appropriate return on your risk because the value of the $100 that you lend to XYZ today and anticipate getting back in 10 years will be worth about 40 cents over that 10 year period due to debasing of the currency. It's that simple. That's otherwise known as inflation. Okay, you need to earn a yield that's higher than inflation. Inflation is 8%. What are government bonds in the US yielding? In the 10 year, right around 2.5%, okay? You're offside by five and a half percent annually. 
by owning a 10-year US government bond. You are an idiot. You failed mathematics. So let's be clear. Do not own any bonds. That's my first advice. Should you own equities? Yes. Should you own real estate? Yes. Should you own hard assets that maintain their value in the face of an inflationary environment? Yes. Do I own gold? Yes. Do I own silver? Yes. Do I own equities? Yes. Do I own the best hard asset that's ever been created by mankind called Bitcoin? Yes, to all of the above. And I own equities. I think I said that. Equities have a chance of keeping up with inflation because they are not a fixed contract. That is why equities can keep pace with inflation. They aren't capped by the coupon. So many people don't understand this. So I think you'll probably get there. So I'll answer the question now. What is a proper portfolio allocation to Bitcoin, in my opinion? I can only tell you it's greater than zero because you're going to have people out there that need to learn. But if you own zero, you are taking a bigger risk. I've said this already. than if you own a proper portfolio allocation. Okay. Foss, how much Bitcoin do you own? I'm at 40% of my portfolio. That's everything that I have. Real estate, uh, equities, uh, you know, what other things do I own? I mentioned commodities, uh, cars, you know, a couple of cars, but they're not vintage cars. They're just cars. They're a, a depreciating asset as well, but you need a car. Um, point is, there's a lot of Bitcoin maxis out there that are 100% all in Bitcoin. I'm not going to say they're wrong. I just don't think you need to go to that extreme in order to participate in the upside of this asymmetry. And by the way, that upside is, in my opinion, probable, but not 100% certain. So you can't be all in on something you're not 100% certain on. And you don't need to be. That's the greatest thing. Because if Bitcoin goes up by 50 times, which I think it will, just to attain its fair value, uh, that's 50 times. It's sort of like the Peter Schiff example. All you have to do is put, I don't know, 2% of your portfolio in Bitcoin. It goes up 50 times. Your entire portfolio has doubled just because of one position that you added 2% exposure to that's now up to 100% uh, or it doubled the value of your whole portfolio. So that's how you manage risk, people. You manage risk based on probabilities, expected values. When the information changes, you change your strategy. Now, this is the problem with Shifty Pete. The information continued to change and he never changed his investment strategy. In fact, he doubled down by saying it's now worse. He has on record so often to say Bitcoin will never attain this price. Okay, it attained that price. Then he just jacks up his price. Bitcoin will never change, attain that price. And, you know, he, he's gone on record so many times. I guarantee you Bitcoin will never reach $10,000 of Bitcoin. Fuck you, Shifty Pete, for being such a conflicted, you know, risk allocator. It, you have cost so many people so much money, and that's just unforgivable. So you got to call out that clown, okay? You have clowns in government, you have clowns in portfolio management, and you got to call them out. Greg, I love it. This is why I love you, brother, because you get so fired up. I'm sort of, I sort of am and sort of not, you know, like I just now I've I, you got to accept these people, but you got also you can you can accept them, but you can't just ignore them because unfortunately they have a podium that people listen. And that's I don't want my kids who try to encourage to make their own decisions having to listen to the drivel coming out of Peter Schiff's mouth 
and thinking that he actually knows what he's talking about. He doesn't. And that's why you have to call out these people. But this is the world we live in. You need to uh, you need to be thankful that you can have freedom of speech still. Uh, you know, it seems like sometimes it's getting stifled more and more. But freedom of speech allows you to call out the pretenders. And that's what I'm trying to do. Just to reiterate, though, I think I have the experience that allows me to do this. I'm not some 25-year-old student that just graduated from university and thinks that I know everything. I've been sitting in the real world managing risk for over 30 years, okay? And I've seen some stuff. And you don't learn that in a textbook. You actually learn it by sitting, as I say, in the proverbial risk chair, where your job, where you're sick to your stomach because you think that you are about to lose not just your job, but all of your clients' hard-earned money because you may be on the wrong side of a trade. That teaches you stuff that you can't learn in a textbook, pure and simple. Greg, let's pull on that a little bit because I think a lot of Bitcoiners, especially in the last couple of months, have been feeling a lot of that emotional kind of- And you own too much. Then you own too much. That's as simple as that. Look, if you are getting sick by the price of the volatility of Bitcoin, the price volatility of Bitcoin, you own too much. Let's say you own 5% of your portfolio in Bitcoin. It's like you forget what the other 95% is in and you just focus on this 5%. Like people, put it away. Let's talk in 20 years. If you disciplined investing is not getting shaken out by short-term price moves. And if you do get shaken out, it means you put too much in. You got to figure out what your meter is. And there's guys who are comfortable being 100% exposed. That's not me. That's too big for me. I also need a house to live in, okay? And I include that house as part of my assets. So, but long story short, your emotion will lead you to making the worst trades you've ever made in your life if you listen to your emotion rather than to logic. And if you're trading on emotion, I promise I know how this ends, you end up with nothing because emotion is the enemy of proper risk management. Greg, that's so money, man. As an active investor, that's what I work on. You know, I work on managing that emotion yeah. because, you know, if I'm looking at the charts all day, I see my P&L all day. The best place to own Bitcoin is in your safe, you know, in a cold wallet or in cold storage. And you just have them there and you say, I have this many and that's how many I have. And you don't convert them to fiat dollars in your idiot brain. You just say, I have point X or X or 10 X Bitcoin saved up and I'll talk to you in 20 years. And you try and not look or think of it in the fiat, uh, in the fiat world where everything has to be, you know, valued in us dollars or whatever. That is not reality. That is the Ponzi. That is how they suck you in and get you to continuously work for a system that doesn't solve itself. When you're in a debt spiral like we are, it requires people consuming in the short term at the expense of their long-term vision and their long-term uh, uh, goals uh, or their long-term monetary energy. Greg, you talked about having a diversified portfolio of different uh, equities, commodities, crypto, et cetera. Why Bitcoin only? And why not diversify that aspect of your portfolio as well? So I need to be real careful here. Um, yes, I am a Bitcoin maximalist. 
do I believe that there will be other uh, tokens or coins that succeed? Yes. None of them will solve the Fiat Ponzi. Therefore, I don't care about them. And secondly, I can also get similar type of risk in the equity markets where I have much more comfort than trading in the altcoin markets, okay? So I'm in Bitcoin very simply because I don't trust the Fiat Ponzi. And there's no other coin or token out there that is truly decentralized that can give me the comfort that I get from owning Bitcoin. So as Fidelity Investments appropriately said, and they didn't say it in my words, but this is Foss's interpreting Fidelity Investments, really good research. And I encourage all your listeners to go and look, look at that research. There's Bitcoin and then there's shit coins. Okay. Act accordingly. <laughs> Love it, man. My biggest holding is uh, Bitcoin in my crypto uh, portfolio. So. Well, so is mine and that's where it should be. And, and I think you need to, everybody, when you're young and you can go to 80% exposure to Bitcoin and you can live with the volatility and you don't have any kids, you don't have to pay a mortgage. Here's advice. And I'm not saying for people to over lever, but don't own bonds and borrow against your assets to the extent that the banks will let you borrow against these assets or to the extent that you're comfortable leveraging your assets because you're supposed to borrow money when interest rates are at historical lows. And you're supposed to borrow money today, you borrow $100 and in 10 years you pay the bank back that same $100 that's only worth $40. It's the flip side. You don't wanna be a lender, you want to be a borrower. So in the context of you having people who have assets and they're thinking, you know, they'd like to take a little bit of money or, or secure some loans against those assets, that's advice that I would give. Don't overlever yourself and don't use credit card debt. You use a low coupon fixed debt. And it's the same advice that any CFO who runs a publicly traded company that could borrow money to put the proceeds into Bitcoin. It's exactly what that CFO should be doing as well. Okay. You're basically, it's capital creation using fiat destruction. And I'm 100% certain that fiat is imploding because that's pure mathematics. Okay. You don't mess with math. 100% certain that fiats will debase. Act accordingly and hedge yourselves. Greg, what's the easiest way for people to get started in Bitcoin? Someone comes up to you, maybe in a bar or, or on a ski lift, right. saying, you know, because you're a skier and someone uh -huh. says, hello, oh, you're into Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, I'm interested, but I don't know what to do. Uh, I'll just tell you, you need to own it in, in, in you, need to, you need to at least get the experience of owning it on a wallet. And I'm not saying own a lot of it, but just understand how beautiful it is where you can buy something and then send that monetary energy somewhere else in the world and it settles in 10 minutes and there was no intermediary. So much like you mentioned, I sent money to Dean Blundell and his, and his uh, guys on that show. I didn't know them. I've never met Dean. In 10 minutes, I sent uh, value to those addresses. And you told me that Dean uh, used it to buy some Christmas presents for his kids. I find that hard to believe, but at the end of the day, it's all good. It means um, you got to experience that and that's experiencing the blockchain, but I own it on a wallet. I also, you don't want to own too much of it on your wallet because your wallet can get hacked. Bitcoin won't get hacked, but your wallet can get hacked. So what you do is you take it off, 
and you put it into cold storage that is not connected to the internet and therefore can't get uh, uh, hacked from you. So that's called cold storage. I also own it in some of the funds that have been created in Canada to allow you to own Bitcoin uh, in your RRSP and your TFSA, a tax advantage basis. Now, there are certain Bitcoiners, and I agree with them, when the government starts blocking your funds, who's to say the government can't block your securities accounts as well? So if it's not your Bitcoin, meaning you own it in these funds that own Bitcoin on your behalf, but you only have a ownership in that fund, you don't actually own the keys of the Bitcoin, you're at risk. But I still prefer to take advantage of some of the tax, uh, the tax implications of, of owning Bitcoin in that way. So that's the third way. And then I also own, as a Canadian, I own this uh, fund called GBTC, which is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust that trades in the USA. And it trades at a 30% discount to its net asset value. And I've just been in the hedge fund business for too long. I can't walk past a dollar and I only have to pay 70 cents for it. So I, I'm like, okay, I got to own some of that because I believe sometime, at some point that value will return to its uh, net asset value. But it's not, again, it's, there's four silos. You got to learn what the blockchain is. You got to keep it secure for your absolute insurance policy. That's your cold storage. And you can take advantage of tax, uh, your, your RSPs and TFSAs in Canada. Canada has a Bitcoin ETFs. You know, you just mentioned yeah. it. Why does Canada have one and America doesn't? Uh, thanks to a guy by the name of Sean Cumbie, who uh, was the CIO of 3IQ. And Sean uh, came to uh, 3IQ from a former hedge fund that I used to work at. There's your daughter. That's cute. And uh, tell her to say hi. Hello, young lady. What's her hi. name? This is Emma. Hi, Emma. Emma. Emma, you want to say hi, sweetie? She just got home from school. Grandpa how old are you, Emma? He wants to know how old you are. Tell him. Six. Ah, nice. Do you that. own Bitcoin yet? <laughs> <laughs> so that's nice, Emma. You keep hugging your dad. That's what makes the world sorry, go around. Sorry, buddy. I'm so that's sorry all good. It's all good. This. No, no, that's I'm, all good. I'm so, supposed to be so, a professional, Greg. It doesn't matter. This is real life. I'd prefer to be real life than uh, than a professional, right? I'll start again. Oh, Fred Pye. Okay, here's we go. So Fred Pye had this idea. He's the guy that orange pilled me. So I'll never forget. Uh, I'll never. Uh, I'll always say thankful. Thanks to Fred Pye. But Sean Cumbie was the guy that won on the stand against the Ontario Securities Commission. Uh, Sean is a very uh, an exceptionally brilliant kid who did. Uh, Tons of work to uh, show the OSC that uh, this was a valuable product for Canadians. And God bless the OSC for making the right decision. If it was up to Fred Pye, he would have fumbled the ball. But thanks to Sean Cumbie, he, uh, he made it happen. So what do you think is holding America back from, from getting... Uh, they're scared, right? They're, uh, they believe that they want control. That's why they did a, a futures-based ETF because they can control and regulate the Chicago Mercantile Exchange where the futures are traded or the CBOE. Uh, but uh, they can't, they don't feel comfortable enough to say that the unregulated black hole where Bitcoin trades, they can properly regulate. I believe it's wrong. I believe they, the OSC made the right decision, but hey, there's a lot of politics in the USA too, right? The Elizabeth Warrens of the world who people actually think has a brain uh, you know, that's unfortunate, but that's what you get. Uh, you know, you, you'll get the haters, the lovers, the haters, uh, people that want to control your lives versus people that want to allow freedom. 
uh, that's an age old uh, battle. Greg, where can people go to learn more about you and get in touch with what you're uh, doing and, and contributing to the community? Oh, I guess I do a lot on Twitter. Um, so I have a Twitter handle, Foss, Greg Foss. So F-O-S-S-G-R-E-G-F-O-S-S. But I'm uh, real proud to be part of an education platform that we're just going to announce in the beginning of April, uh, where we've put together a free education platform for anybody in the world who can learn about finance, wants to learn about finance, but is either overwhelmed or misinformed by what they teach you in school. So I'm part of a group of five other people from around the world that's put together this education platform. We will announce it at the Bitcoin conference in Miami. It's right now it's called uh, looking glass education. So it's on my Twitter bio. Uh, don't go there yet because it's not up and running, but I've already put it on my Twitter bio. You're the first podcast I'm announcing this on uh, lookingglasseducation.com. This is for people who we are going to help understand the realities of the financial world and why everybody needs to own Bitcoin. They need to own more than zero. Get off of zero. Figure out how much you should own. It allows you to sleep at night and you could not have to look at the price on a daily basis. And then we'll talk in 20 years. Greg, this has been a, a real honor. And like I said, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, Thank you. of, of yours and what you contribute to the community. You have helped elevate my learning in Bitcoin. You know, And I think that that's where everyone really needs to start because there are so many different digital assets out there. Yeah, start with Bitcoin, please. Everybody needs to start with Bitcoin. It's chapter one, in my that's opinion. Correct. And, and yeah. you can't skip chapter one and then just go guns a blazing. So I think that this is really powerful and really helpful. So I'm just so appreciative of your time, sir. Thanks for having me. It's great to meet you. And uh, perhaps we'll do it again sometime. All right. Foss the boss. I love his passion. Give him a follow on Twitter at Foss, Greg Foss. Links in the show notes. Hit that like button, hit subscribe, and make sure you let Greg Foss know you heard him on the Hot Wallet podcast. From the bottom, ain't no half-stepping. I'm the dog, I made it through so they don't ask questions. Long Beach, and it ain't no half-repping. Once a dog, always a dog, so they don't ask questions. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. 
Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.